everyone, and welcome to the Seven Investing Podcast, where today we'll be talking about all things technology, including AI, cloud computing, and self-driving cars. My name is Simon Erickson. I'm founder and CEO of Seven Investing, where it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing our best stock market opportunities each month for just $17, and also a ton of educational content to help investors make better decisions. I'm very excited to welcome our guest today. Tiernan Ray is a technology reporter who's covered the industry for more than 25 years, written for a variety of publications, and today he's covering it with ZDNet and his own The Technology Letter. Uh, Tiernan, thanks for joining Seven Investing here this afternoon. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, son. Tiernan, like I had mentioned, you know, I followed you for, for more than 10 years, and I know that you follow the tech landscape for more than 25 years now. You've seen some seismic changes taking place over that time. So my first question for you has to be the 10,000 foot level one of what is it in tech right now that you think is really interesting? Uh, the artificial intelligence stuff that I've been writing about at ZDNet is fascinating. And the intersection of that and cloud computing and possibly on the horizon, Simon, is the quantum computing element of that. But right now it's, it's algorithms uh, that are coming out of big data efforts and cloud computing uh, as it facilitates all of that. Some good topics in there. Let's start with AI first. And I know that a company that you put a lot of coverage out on for years has been NVIDIA. Also a great performer for investors as well. And we've been seeing them put some money to work here in the last couple of years. Acquired Mellanox early this year for $7 billion and then just $40 billion recently for ARM Holdings. Uh, NVIDIA has been kind of such a staple of AI, right? And the accelerators and the GPUs and the parallelism and everything that they've done. Yeah. Uh, it seems, though, that they're kind of trying to expand from being this GPU maker to being more of this broader-based data center efficiency play. Yeah. Uh, Tiernan, you've, you've mentioned, though, that there's kind of some conflicts, potentially, though, with this, with this acquisition of ARM. Since a lot of ARM's customers were competitors of NVIDIA's GPUs, you think that NVIDIA is going to be able to make this jump successfully? I think it's tricky, Simon. Their proposition makes sense, which is, People want some form of artificial intelligence in every device. NVIDIA currently has technology to do that. They need a distribution channel. ARM would give them that. However, ARM sells its technology blueprints to every company that competes with NVIDIA, including Intel and Qualcomm and AMD. So I can't imagine that they're happy about this, even though NVIDIA's CEO, Jensen Wong, claims Companies are just fine. I think companies are uh, flipping out uh, among the competitors and they're contemplating how they're gonna deal with this. And I think it's gonna, it's gonna be a really thorny um, antitrust issue for NVIDIA. And I think it's gonna be a problem for ARM's ongoing business. And I don't think it's gonna be as smooth as Jensen Huang would like people to believe. So the rationale for it makes perfect sense. It's just this problem that, you know, all of the competitors to NVIDIA are not happy about this. Is the goal of NVIDIA in this to improve the efficiency the, and the diversity of what they're selling to the data center right now? They want their performance per watt to be as attractive as possible to offer a broad buffet of options for their customers? That makes sense. That's one part of it, too, that um, they've had this power issue with GPUs not being uh, as energy efficient as they should be. And some people think that that is right. The entire rationale is just beef up those or slim down those data center chips. Um, but I, I think the, you know, the trillion device opportunity for them is to have 
an accelerator for AI in every single thing in the world, uh, which, which ARM would get them right into toasters, into cars, even more so than they are now. Um, into all manner of IoT devices, think smart infrastructure with an NVIDIA accelerator and every single uh, chip in that of which there are billions every year. So um, the volume opportunity is never with data center just because it tends to be a smaller volume market. I feel like for NVIDIA, this is kind of go big to high volume uh, and that's what ARM would get them. Great points there. One other comment I, I did want to make about data center, or at least something that we've noticed in the last couple of years, has been the shift to kind of ASICs away from GPUs and more to custom silicon chips. We saw Tesla do that a couple of years ago, right? They hired Jim Keller from AMD fame to go out and design them a chip that would help run the neural networks of their self-driving cars. Um, and I, I guess that, you know, my question is, you know, we saw Tesla is a very innovative company, always ahead of the curve was using GPUs for a lot of those functions before, and now they're trying to develop their own things. And Elon's promised a $25,000 self, full self-driving car within three years. I, I don't think Tiernan, we can hold him to his timetable for anything that he comments on, but bigger picture, what's the role of GPUs and NVIDIA in the autonomous vehicle opportunity? I think, I think NVIDIA will get there. I think they'll find the right cost envelope. It seems like what Elon does, does is a stalking horse, so to speak. He puts something out there and it's never ever going to be really realize the way he describes it. I mean, the same thing with the battery technology this week, but he sets a goal for people and it's a good way to cajole suppliers to meet what he wants. And I don't think he's, I don't think Musk is attached to, it has to be the Tesla chip that is the brains. I think they see themselves as a manufacturing company first and foremost, and a software company secondly, and somewhere in there, an energy company, um, you know, with solar, with rooftop solar. So I think the software component would be just fine if it's lots of Tesla programs running on an NVIDIA GPU. And so that just means that NVIDIA has to bring down the cost of what they can do. And maybe Jensen Huang and NVIDIA imagines that, uh, you know, ARM's intellectual property would enable other suppliers of chips in the ecosystem to use NVIDIA acceleration circuitry for AI in embedded chips that are, shall we say, more in the, oh, you know, Fairchild Semiconductor, National Semiconductor price range, which in other words, these are um, gigantic catalog parts that go into automobiles already. You know, some of these companies have huge, huge market share um, in autos for all kinds of diversified semiconductors. That's the kind of part you would like to be carrying uh, an ARM-enabled NVIDIA acceleration logic that brings royalties to NVIDIA, but doesn't require NVIDIA to slim down apart from what might be thousands or hundreds of dollars down to $50 um, to fit within the cost envelope of a car. So if that's the distribution strategy for NVIDIA to get AI into a Tesla machine in a budget that makes sense for Elon Musk, I, I like that idea. It makes a lot of sense. It sounds like there's a lot of moving parts there, a lot of opportunities. To, the the ideas to kind of fit the pieces together and offer a yeah. variety of of options for. What do you think, Taryn? I mean, Nvidia is not a small company anymore. It's three hundred billion dollar market cap. Is this priced accurately, or is this still the earliest innings of what they want to do? Everything's been inflated upwards, Simon. Um, the stocks that are the top tier used to trade at maybe four or five times revenue. Just couple years ago and things are now 10, 10 times revenue is now nothing. I'm talking about if you divide either enterprise value or market capitalization by the projected 
next 12 months or the out year, sort of next fiscal year projected uh, annual revenue, 10 times is now nothing for a company like Apple, um, eight or nine times for Oracle. And NVIDIA is at 14, 15 times actually, um, if you sort of count all in diluted share count. Um, 15 times revenue is a high point for any sort of established tech company now. Um, and of course, there are companies that are small stocks that are trading for uh, much more than that, but it's pricey. Uh, when we looked at NVIDIA at Barron's five years ago, um, before data center had proven itself at NVIDIA to be riding the wave of AI, um, before it was clear that they were such a threat to Intel, they were not in anywhere in this range of 15 times forward revenue. So it's pricey now on a price to free cash flow basis, which is you know, sort of the other relevant metric for them, 44 times. Uh, I mean, these are high, high multiples. Um, it used to be that it felt like 23 times earnings or 23 times cash flow was a lot. Um, everything is inflated now and for the most part. And NVIDIA is an example of that. I, I think it's pricey now. I think they would have to show that um, maybe there's your, your, you know, your stock investing play is if you really think that arm is going to work out for them to give them a vastly broader distribution, which means a much higher unit count for where they're selling or, and charging royalties, then maybe you say, oh, okay, you know, you have no idea what, you know, the multiple is going to look not so expensive when you see how the revenue growth is going to inflect. Maybe, maybe that's your you know, sort of your, your outside option on the arm play. It makes a lot of sense, Tiernan. You know, and the 10X Revenue Club used to be something we talked about a decade ago as a venture capitalist, like Bill Gurley would mention. Now it's common for, for companies like these. Yeah. Uh, we also kind of hear all the time that, that, Cloud computing companies are, are overpriced, right? How many times have we heard cloud companies, SaaS companies, software as a service companies being described as overvalued, overpriced, oh um, selling 20 times sales, right? Or, or more than that right now. But still, if you look at the index as a whole, I mean, you know, 100 companies in an index that's now up 500% over the last five years. What is it that Wall Street is missing when they're valuing cloud computing companies? How is it that an overvalued company like that can continue to be mispriced in the market for so long? Uh, I think that everything is uh, now relative valuation. And so if companies like um, Okta, you know, are the, the metric, Okta is a highly successful company, very, very reliable beat and raise kind of quarterly performance and commanding high, high multiples. I think everything else in cloud, uh, you know, be it uh, Twilio, be it Talend, be it Atlassian, be it Viva, everything gets measured against these relative benchmarks. And so there is no more any kind of absolute measure for what do you think, you know, these things should be priced at. And nobody cares relative to the S&P, what should they be priced at. Um, it is basically uh, every analyst looking at what are the comps, what are the peer group valuations and just sort of marking it up to that. Um, I think one of the recent ones was, um, you know, Dynatrace is sort of not as, ex as expensive as Datadog. These are two companies in analytics. And so if you're looking at it and you say, what's my, you know, information arbitrage, I think Dynatrace is, an analyst will say, I think Dynatrace is better than it's being given credit for. Um, it, it's sort of out of favor versus Datadog. So, given that Dynatrace stock is not as expensive as, as, as Datadog, I'm going to say there's a sort of a steal the deal 
you know, 25% upside in Dynatrace. And that's how it, it gets marked out, even though both of those are somewhat expensive, right? But, but there is a delta between the two of them. And so everything is relative valuation at this point. I'm glad you brought up Datadog and, and Dynatrace. And, you know, this is kind of in that field with New Relic also, where you've got a ton of apps being built in the cloud. And you want to see the performance, not only at the software top of the stack, but also kind of the infrastructure of what's behind it, you know, clear out the problem. So it's if running more efficiently for everybody. Yes. That has been a really hot space lately. And we've seen Datadog really been the almost uncontested winner from that, at least in terms of stock performance. Do yes. you think that, that these orchestration platforms, you know, whether it be application performance monitoring, whether it be cloud performance orchestration, multi-cloud, I mean, we're seeing a lot of, as you described it, um, I believe it was a, a cloud gold rush or, or the rush to the clouds. Uh, where everybody's going to cloud, they've got a whole bunch of different providers to choose from, but they've got to make sense of that chaos because there's a lot of if, if inefficiency in that. Is this a winner-take-all market where, where one of them goes and runs with everything, or is this a place where you can have six, seven winners in this? As long as it's a tools market, Simon, you can have six or seven winners because I think devs, devs like tools. They love tools. Like it's, There's never it, their presence under the Christmas tree. No dev wants one tool. They want lots of them, and they'll use all, all of them because they're all fun to use, just like programming languages. Every dev knows seven programming languages because they do different things, and it's fun to learn them, and it's fun to try out new stuff. Um, they're kind of like foodies. Like, they don't, they don't go to one restaurant reliably. It's like, why wouldn't you sort of sample, right, the buffet at every place? Um, so I think there's, you don't consolidate. That's one of the problems for a tools vendor, I think, is you don't achieve dominance. Um, the infrastructure makers are different. And what I wonder about, Simon, is um, as with Snowflake, which went public recently, which is kind of buying a lot of cloud capacity to sit in the middle of things as a database, I wonder if someone's going to come along and do to New Relic and Datadog and Dynatrace um, what Snowflake's attempting to do to Oracle, which is to, to turn what is a tools market into an infrastructure market and say, you know, you don't need to buy all these tools. We're just kind of sign up, put your credit card into our web-based service, our cloud-based service, and we'll help you manage all of these. What you're trying to do is you're trying to manage your application's runnability. Um, so I feel like what, the reason I came up with this phrase, the great cloud rush, which is a play on the 1800s gold rushes, there keep being successive layers of companies like Snowflake to fix what's wrong with the cloud. And it's like, every time you think a company like Datadog has nailed it, somebody else comes along who's a little bit younger and they say, no, you know, we got a different way to do this. Um, and it's just part of the, the great soup of cloud services that you can keep building companies and you could keep taking a new take on it as long as there's, as long as there's venture available, right? To do seed rounds and, and A and B rounds, you could keep trying a new thing. So let's double click on that too, because we're starting to see SPACs and a lot of companies that are these unicorns, these multi-billion dollar private companies yeah. finding creative ways to, to come public now. Is this good for the technology industry that we've got a ton of, of capital that's now going to the public markets, especially in spaces like this? It's good for things that might not make it to market like LIDAR companies, sensor companies that might have a hard time getting um, the kind of bridge financing that they need to move beyond prototype stage. And so I suspect that some of the SPACs, um, these are special purpose acquisition companies that have reverse merged to bring private companies to the public markets. Some of them may really be making a contribution by helping 
um, bring these LIDAR firms, for example, sensor firms that would be abstruse and wouldn't get the attention to bring them easily into the public markets. Um, although, you know, I would wonder, someone who wants to put their money where they want it, an individual investor, I, I wonder if they're happy with um, a blank check company making the decisions uh, for where that money is going to go. So I, I think there's also a, a real question here for the individual investor when they just write a check to these SPACs and, and the SPAC is going to make the investing decision. Uh, that's more a question, sort of not my um, moral take, but it's more a question I have for general, in general for individual investors is how happy are they with that. So far, I think, you know, they've been pretty happy. I think if you see the way these things have been bid up, um, right, Social Capital was the latest one uh, a couple weeks ago. They bought Open Door, which is a real estate. Uh, how They basically, they'll give you cash money for your house, right? And so they're acting like a Zillow for home sales, but in a much more direct way where they're just going to, throw money at homeowners and help you flip that house real quick. Um, and so Social Capital got a big jump on this when they announced that they, that's the, Social Capital is the SPAC, they announced they'd buy open door. Um, and so it seems like so far individual investors, the market is responding, but you know, Simon, sometimes it's hard to tell, like the market kind of just likes a lot of stuff. Um, and you wonder like how sincere is that? It is very interesting to see the different ways that private companies are going public now, right? It's not yeah. just the IPO. It's not even just the SPAC, the special purpose acquisition companies. Like you said, we also yeah. saw direct listings. Those were really popular a couple of years ago, right? The Slacks, Spotify's, you know. Right. We haven't seen as much of the direct listings. Yeah. We haven't seen as much as I, I'm waiting for more of like, remember the, the Google Dutch auction for the Google yes. IPO 20 years ago. That was kind of 16 years ago. That was like really um, like that Google had figured out the IPO process. I want to see more of these kind of zany, you know, IPO processes where the, like the brilliant CEO tells the bankers how it's going to be. I just they find that entertaining. It, it is creative for sure. Yeah. Uh, shifting gears a little bit here, Tina, you know, something else that you wrote about in the last couple of days is actually about Facebook. Yeah. It was with relation to the Department of Justice, um, actually not not intensifying, but relaxing its, its regulations on kind of content moderation out there. Specifically, it was saying that it would limit a platform's ability to remove content arbitrarily or in ways that were inconsistent with its own terms and services. And, and my understanding of that, that's kind of putting the ball in the court of each one of those platforms to make the decision while not having kind of this overall, um, you know, stated terms and conditions that they have to follow. What's your take on the DOJ's uh, decision on this one? It's easier for the for Facebook and social companies because it narrows their responsibility. They had to before um, think about gen what's what would be generally objectionable content and think about whether they wanted to police that content to take it down. And now they've been told only worry about content that is actually unlawful. Um, say let's say the sale of contraband items uh, posted as a piece of content on Facebook or things that promote terrorism. Um, and so presumably it's much easier to identify something that's promoting terrorism on Facebook than other kinds of content. Um, and some people will say that this is an overreach by uh, William Barr, that this is the Department of Justice wanting to prevent uh, liberals from shutting down conservative commentary that liberals find objectionable. If you leave aside that political discussion, it simply does narrow the responsibility of the website. So it's good for Facebook in that sense. and none of it at all goes to the issue that has emerged in the last decade that wasn't here in 1996 
when the uh, Communications Decency Act was written, which is the thing that Barr is, is now proposing to revise, in 1996, we had no concept that a website could have a whole machinery of algorithms that would privilege certain content, by which we mean it would surface content without your choosing, uh, guessing for you what you might respond to. And this is the complaint of people like Roger McNamee, who wrote the book Zucked about Facebook, um, and a whole bunch of authors that the algorithms behind Facebook and Twitter uh, are, and behind Google search are pushing to us content that we never chose. And so they're not neutral platforms. They are surfacing things and those algorithms as well can be manipulated. And so that whole thing that's been discovered and now extensively documented in the last 10 years about social media and about uh, keyword search and such algorithm driven platforms is not addressed in any way at this point. It, it, you know, it did, wasn't addressed when Mark Zuckerberg spoke before Congress. It's now not addressed at all by William Barr in his proposal. And so the kind of the, the fundamental discovery about how social media operates circa 2020 is in no way addressed by regulation. And based on, you know, a year's worth of work now by William Barr, at least with this administration, it's not going to be addressed. So I would think like, Hey, this thumbs up, you know, if you're Facebook, like the way that we make money, these algorithms is not in any way in jeopardy at this point. Which has always been on the table. It's always been an investor risk about regulation. But from your perspective, at least regulation still in the Stone Age compared to what's happened the last 24 years for these kind of companies. It's still in the Stone Age. And the question is with antitrust, will they move to talking about um, beyond consumer harm to talking about competitive harm broadly? Because you know, for 20, 30 years now, antitrust is strictly focused on pricing and consumer harm or benefit. That's been the only metric for antitrust. People have been wanting for years for um, the law to look at the effect of large, large dominant companies in freezing out competitors generally. And it, it's, it's unclear if that will happen. It, it feels like maybe there's more momentum now you know, with the Justice Department apparently going after Google, maybe there's more momentum to change how antitrust has been pursued, but that remains to be seen. So there is still an antitrust risk, but I would say in terms of regulating these innards, the guts of how Facebook and others operate, the law is in the Stone Age. It has no concept. It still thinks that when you go to Facebook, it's just a website and somebody put, you post, you know, Simon posts stuff, Tiernan posts stuff, and I'm just looking at Simon's stuff. He's looking at my stuff and that's how it operates. They have no idea that, you know, Joe, Henry, Frank, Susan, Adam, David, Penelope are posting stuff that Simon and Kieran didn't ask to see, but we're getting exposed to uh, in disproportionate amounts. And, and that's a new phenomenon. Very true. And uh, that was an excellent job of coming up with seven names very quickly too, Tiernan. Right, right, it's, it's free association. I don't know why they're those names. <laughs> that's a deep question. Probably Penelope. Penelope. That was a great. Right? Yeah. It just shows uh, what happens on social media. That's right. Uh, one, one more specific question I wanted to ask you about was, you know, we hear a lot about 5G. This is something that's making headlines all the time right now. Right. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of opportunity for this. We're always talking about internet things and the bandwidth that they would need. And of yeah. course, everything's gotten mobile for, for several years now. But I guess just open-ended, do you have thoughts about 5G? It's... Um, has sudden new momentum, I'm told, by companies that are small suppliers. There's two um, 
small uh, companies that are both publicly traded that would be of interest to your investors. They're excellent companies, excellent management and excellent products. And they're right in the middle of 5G. One is uh, Cambium, uh, CMBM is the ticker. Uh, Cambium is a supplier of uh, wireless equipment for basically doing kind of like extended range. You could think of it as sort of the intersection of Wi-Fi and 5G. Um, so Cambium is one in Clearfield Communications, CLFD is the ticker, is a Minnesota company that um, does a lot of outside, what you call outside plant traditionally, which is boxes in the field that will connect fiber optics to the home or will connect fiber optics to a tower where you have a 5G uh, radio. Um, and so both of these companies are telling me that the pandemic lockdown, um, the, uh, the movement of people out of large office spaces to remote sites, including their home, has, has added a new urgency to rolling out uh, 5G, um, not just in the United States, but in other parts of the world. Um, but now wide area wireless broadband um, is seen as more critical to possibly allow people to continue to work from home in part or in total uh, in certain companies, in certain fields, in certain industries, in certain regions for an extended period of time. If you believe that things are not going back to the way they were, then you have to believe that there needs to be new infrastructure to serve people where they're going to be working. Um, so it, it, this seems to change very frequently, but I would say right now we're in the midst of a better feeling about 5G and 5G investments, broadly speaking, a, a sense that there's new urgency because of the pandemic versus what might have been feeling like a slowing down or lots of impediments sort of last year or the end of last year. General, I've got you here. I, I've got to have a little bit of fun and ask a, a far out there question, you know, because, because to hear your expertise on this, and I would really love to, to know what you think, but while we're taking moonshots, um, I'm going to spot you up with two ideas. You tell me which one of these two you're more bullish on within the next five years. Cool. The first is satellite internet. Yeah. The second is quantum computing. Right. Um, quantum is um, quantum is easy for large companies to fund at the moment uh, because there's been so much work uh, in academia that everyone knows what the problems are and they can take a stab at solving them in different ways. Um, satellite still is built in that kind of rogue, uh, rogue action, lone wolf fashion where every company that does something satellite has a different idea of what that means. And so, you know, for example, to this week is Microsoft has a big annual conference where they show off a lot of stuff um, and called Ignite. And um, one of the things they're talking about is um, to hook up Azure web services to satellites. Um, and that, I would take that as a barometer of like, yeah, Microsoft's really interested in what they can do with satellites. And, and everyone's kind of really interested in what they can do with satellites. But I, I tend to feel where there's an academic effort that has built a ground work and a support system for something it tends to pay dividends. And so I like something like quantum that has been studied so extensively intellectually, academically for, for decades, now paying off commercially versus space cowboys building their own, each building their own network of 300 satellites and each one thinking they're going to be the answer. And there's sort of no coming together and no agreement. It's like, 
it sort of feels to me like you know, quantum is the internet where lots of players will benefit because it'll have decades of, of payoff versus, um, you know, I don't know, every company's going to build their own network and think that they're going to own it. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, to me, I've always felt like quantum was the ultimate disruptor for computing power, but it always seems like it's something that's being figured out. Mm -hmm. you know, and it seems like it's going to be something like the cloud, you know, at some point where you can tap into the quantum computer, you pay by the hour, maybe you pay by the minute. Uh, but it's going to be solving super complex things like drug development and protein folding yeah, and stuff like that. It is. And, and on the way there, Simon, before they get to the, rele the, the relevant capacity for full quantum, what they're talking about now is, you know, quantum accelerators where it's partial work done. So there's a kind of some operation within a general computing program is offline and run through quantum for some kind of advantage. Um, it doesn't, you don't have to build the ultimate quantum computing system. So th there's a little bit of a nuance now and maybe that will help. Yeah, great point. Uh, Tiernan, thanks for, for letting me put you on the spot with a, a crazy question like that. I'll, 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 close out with one more that's just kind of open-ended you know you follow the tech industry for so long our audience at seven investing is individual investors we're really interested in this space anything you think we should be keeping an eye on that's that's especially relevant or very interesting right now in all of technology you're talking about anything that you follow in tech could be anything we talked about could be anything that we haven't talked about here in the yeah we, we have yet to see simon um a really good um a really good market for investing in materials. And we saw whatever may or may not come out of it, Elon Musk's presentation on Tuesday night was fascinating about new materials and all the waste that's in production of something like battery. Um, and supposedly I read somewhere um, that this is the material century, meaning the century we're 20 years into now is supposed to be dominated by um, the innovations in materials, things like synthetic materials, things like new ways of manufacturing the same stuff. And we've had select investments here and there. There's a company called Thin Films, which I think is a domicile in Oslo, Norway. And they're a neat company. They make things like, you know, um, smart materials that you could do for sort of having product packaging that, that displays digital signage on it. I mean, fascinating stuff like this, but it's one little thing and it's kind of like there ha the, the investments have been few and far between and, but it, it sort of feels like every single thing that's out there from the iPhone to Alexa to self-driving cars has, has, as one investor said to me, it's asymptoted, meaning it's hit the, the bad knee in the curve where it flatlines for a long time it does not keep progressing. We've seen this definitely with semiconductors, with microprocessors, with Moore's Law um, becoming a problem for Intel's scaling. We've seen it, as you mentioned earlier, with NVIDIA running up against energy issues in their GPUs. All of these conventional electronics are running into problems of physics, and so we're at the frontier of physics, and new materials might conceivably solve some of that. And for an investor standpoint, there are trapped efforts, captive efforts inside all these companies that are interesting. There haven't been a lot of pure plays to invest in, in materials, but I, I would be, that would be, I would be interested, you know, as a decades long opportunity in, in what's there. And maybe it's like the new version of 3M or something, maybe. 
That, that sounds intriguing. That's a unique answer I haven't heard before. So I'm going to be keeping okay. my eyes on materials. Uh, once again, Taryn and Ray, you know, one of the, one of, I just think one of the most in-depth technology reporters that there is out there. It's really a, a pleasure having you on the seven investing podcast. Thanks so much for the time, Taryn. Pleasure being here. Thank you for the opportunity. And if you'd like to follow his newsletter, that is just www.thetechnologyletter.com. Uh, some great material in there. Definitely great for due diligence of individual investors. And again, I'm Simon Erickson. I'm the CEO and founder of Seven Investing, where we're here to empower you to invest in your future. Thanks for tuning in. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.